The following audio is from Life Centre Church. For more information, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. Just want to say a massive happy birthday to you, our church family. Uh, thank you so much for uh, those who have been here from the beginning and helped us transition and move and, and sort of start uh, a brand new sort of church in the area. Uh, it's been a long, long journey. And thanks for all those who've just been a part of that and are coming along and contributing um, this like as much as that gift is lovely and wonderful, the reality is the church is all of us. Um, and we don't want this church to be about us. We want this church to be about Jesus. And we'll often say, if you're new to our church, uh, we don't take ourselves very seriously, but we do take the gospel and we do take Jesus very seriously. Um, and so we just want to say thank you from the bottom of our hearts for everything that you do and you contribute and just who you are uh, in the life of uh, our wonderful church family. So thank you. Uh, we are going to invite uh, Jimmy up. Uh, Pastor Jimmy is uh, leading LCC Calandra. And so, again, for those of you who might not know, we planted a church out of our church in 2019. He'll tell you a little bit about the story. Uh, but it's just so wonderful to have the Smith Cottrells back with us on our birthday. Thanks for coming down. Um, Jimmy is going to be preaching from Daniel chapter 4. So if you have your Bibles uh, or your screens, open that up. Um, I'm only going to read four verses, but something we like to do at our church uh, every week is we like to say that this is God's word. He is who he says he is. He has done what he says he has done, and he will do what he says he will do. Amen? Amen. I'm going to read from Daniel chapter 4, verse 34 and 35. It says this. It says, At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven, And my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, and he does according to his will among the hosts of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? Come up, Jimmy. Give him a big welcome. Thanks, mate. Cheers, buddy. Well, good morning. My name is Jimmy. If it's uh, if I haven't met you, uh, there's a lot of you who I haven't met. I was going to say I'd love to meet you afterwards, but that would be a long uh, afternoon for us, and I won't, won't probably get to meet all of you. But happy birthday, LCC Calandra. It's um, a real joy. And oh, sorry, Calandra, LCC Northlakes. I'm so used to saying, sorry. You know, you're only LCC Northlakes because we planted LCC Caloundra before this. It was before us. It was just Life Centre Church, and then we started Life Centre Church Caloundra. And you guys, like, you guys were like, I guess we've got to be Life Centre Church Northlakes now. Um, anyway, uh, we uh, started attending LCC Northlakes. Uh, my wife and I and our three kids, uh, actually our two kids at that point, um, at the beginning of 2015, and. Uh, we were talking about this this morning, actually. The reason, or one of the main reasons why we stayed at LCC uh, at that point in time was uh, because my daughter, who was about three years old, we were looking for different churches, and we came to LCC at Launton at the time, and Trev was welcoming at the front there. And uh, as we walked in, and my daughter wasn't too impressed that we had left our old church, and he, Trev offered her a giant marshmallow. And um, after that, she said, can we go back to Marshmallow Church again? And in our house, we called it Marshmallow Church for like a couple of years. Uh, and so this morning I came here and Trev had a bag of marshmallows for our kids, which was really, really awesome. 
Um, uh, yeah, we, uh, we planted the LCC in uh, Caloundra at, um, uh, at the beginning of 2019. And there are lots of people here. We left here at the end of 2018. There are lots of people here who wouldn't be, wouldn't have been here for that journey. Um, God has been so gracious and kind to us in this planting journey. Um, the fact that we are still here, um, still doing it is a testament to his faithfulness and a testament to his grace. Uh, the church is doing well. Um, we've got our first group of elders being uh, trained up, our elder candidates being trained up. Um, we have around 130 people attend, who call LCC Caloundra their home, um, and we're seeing God work in people's lives, God reawakening um, Christians is how we like to call it, uh, people who have re- uh, begun, become rather apathetic in their faith and seeing them step into areas of ministry. Um, and I want to say to you guys, before I actually begin, do it again. Plant another church. Do it. It's a really good thing. It's a good thing for God's kingdom. Pray for it. Yearn for it. Be eager for it. Set it on your heart. Put it on your schedule. Make it part of your agenda. And I'm not, when I talk to you, I'm not talking to Kylan because I know that Kylan wants to plant another church. He wants to plant another 12 churches out of LCC Northlake. Put it on your agenda to pray for this. Put it on your agenda to, to see God for this. To ask God, hey God, are you, well, do you want me to be part of the next team? Do you want me to move house? Do you want me to change career? Do you want me to start putting aside? How, how much money should I be putting aside at the moment, Lord, for the next church plan? Do it. Do it for God's kingdom. Do it for his glory. God's plan for the world is Jesus Christ offering salvation through his body, through the church. And I'm here, to, I want to say to you guys, do it again. Be generous in your prayers. Be generous in, in, in God's kingdom in this. Do it again. We were so blessed uh, by LCC North Lakes, we went and planted by the financial generosity by so many people. Um, we were enormously blessed by this, those who uh, prayed for us over and over again, ongoing, those who were still praying for us. Um, we were enormously blessed by people like Steve and Tam and the whole um, bot crew who every Sunday for the first year of our plant drove up to the Caloundra and led life kids or served in some way, served on creche every second week for the first year. You don't have to be Tim Keller to do this. Steve Bott is definitely not Tim Keller. <laughs> but they came and they blessed us and they encouraged us each week serving in our church. That could be you. Put that on your agenda, that you, for the next one, are going to go serve in that way. Blessed by people like Shane and Lauren, who drove up each week to worship lead and to serve the church. People like Cruz as well, who came up and just set up chairs regularly for us. There was times actually for Shane and Lauren where they left church and sat on the highway for seven hours to get back home because of the traffic on the Bruce Highway. That's, guys, this is for God's kingdom, right? This is for God's glory. It's totally worth it, 100% worth it. So do it again, church. Can I encourage you in that way? Be praying for it. Be praying for Kylam and the team as well. All right, well, um, one more person I want to thank, and that's Kylam. because today's all about him. <laughs> no, it isn't. Um, uh, <laughs> um, no, uh, Kylan has been 
uh, just a wonderful mentor and friend and help in ministry, no way that we would have continued with this journey of church planting ourselves if it weren't for him and his constant regular prayers and input into our lives. His um, his last minute, I'll just drive up there and we'll spend some time together at night um, just coming up to counsel me and encourage me. So, mate, I... I'm so grateful for absolutely everything that you've done, how much you and Carly and the whole family have sacrificed um, for the sake of God's kingdom. And, um, yeah, very, very uh, blessed by you, mate. So we thank you so much. Let me pray, and then we're going to get into God's word. And Shane, my 25 minutes starts now, right? Because <laughs> we haven't started my sermon yet, so let's pray. Thank you, Father, for your kindness and your goodness to us. Thank you, Lord, for this church, LCC Northlakes. Lord, we thank you that you work through you work through imperfect people, Father. You work through people who have rebelled against you and have shaken their fist at you, and you work through us, Lord. You love us, you care for us, and you gave us your words so that we might know you and be drawn to you, Lord. And so we ask that you would do that this morning, that you would draw us to yourself. Make yourself known to us, Holy Spirit. Uh, We ask you to uh, open our hearts to the glory of Jesus in your word. We love you so much, Father. Amen. Well, we are looking at Daniel 4 today, and uh, what we're going to see, if you uh, have been tracking along with this series, is this clash or this collision of kingdoms. It's this terrific showdown between the kingdom of God and a kingdom of mankind. And the reason why I call this, call it a kingdom of mankind, is because Nebuchadnezzar, the the king at this time of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar is just one in a very long line of people who have stood against the Lord and his purposes and have been found wanting. He's just one of them. He stands up against the Lord and the Lord has his way. Imagine waves crashing against a solid rocky outcrop like a cliff or a peninsula. Each wave comes roaring in making all sorts of noise and commotion. It rises up. It spurts out its great influence. It puffs itself up with pride. It makes a hell of a crash, and it might strike fear into the hearts of those who observe it. But the rock is unmoved and unchanged, and the wave retreats, making way for the next barrage. This is Nebuchadnezzar raging against the Lord. He is just another wave crashing against the bedrock of Almighty God. And the Bible treats him much the way that the Bible treats every other ruler and tyrant and leader who positions himself against the Lord and his purposes. They are nothing more than a device in the hands of the Lord. Like the song goes, though the nations rage, kingdoms rise and fall, there is still one king reigning over all. Nebuchadnezzar is, of course, the king of Babylon, who a number of years earlier had led a successful campaign against God's people. They sacked the kingdom of Judah and they carried off uh, Judah's precious treasures, uh, Judah's people, the people of Judah, and the articles of worship. And yet, he is also 
he is also just an instrument in the hands of the Lord. And in the passage that we're going to see today, he's not only, he's not only the instrument of, of God's discipline for his people, he's also the instrument for God's own glory and exaltation. And friends, we should be encouraged. We should consider ourselves at ease. That if there is a world leader or a tyrant or some kind of person in authority who is standing against our God, that person, like all the others, is simply a device in the hands of the Lord, a tool in the hands of the Lord set apart for his purposes. And what we're going to find in this passage today is an invitation to be swept up into the purposes of God and for his kingdom and to reject our own small-minded, temporary, fickle, fragile and futile purposes, plans and agendas. We're going to look at this passage in the two parts that it comes to us in. Firstly, Nebuchadnezzar's pride and secondly, God's sovereign rule. Those are the two main headings of today. So firstly, Nebuchadnezzar's pride. Chapter 4 of Daniel is a little bit different because it's told mostly from the first-person perspective of Nebuchadnezzar himself. He's writing this. He's the narrator looking back at the events as they took place for him. And Nebuchadnezzar has been on a bit of a journey throughout this book so far. A number of years earlier, his nation's army had besieged and destroyed Judah, God's people, the remnant of God's people. And he had brought back a lot of the Israelites back to Babylon to be slaves and to basically conquer them by assimilation. And they had followed the usual program for assimilation. They had given them money, they had given them, they changed their names, they changed their customs, they gave them jobs, gave them places to live in order to really wipe out Israelite culture from within. Just, we can use their resources, we can use their skills, we can use this as a labor force. Let's just make them Babylonians. But some strange things took place. These people were different. They could, they could interpret wacky dreams. And God, their God, seemed to protect them even though they were a long way from home. They were fireproof, as it seems. And as these events occurred, Nebuchadnezzar, he drifts in and out of fear and respect of God. In chapter 2, verse 47, he says, Your God is indeed the God of gods and the Lord of kings. Notice he's saying your God. He's going, oh, your God is pretty awesome here. In chapter 3, verse 29, he says that there is no other God who is able to deliver like this. He's never seen a God like this before. And those events had been building up to this moment in chapter 4. Nebuchadnezzar, in chapter 4, is at the height of his power. He says of himself that he was at ease in his house and he was flourishing. Life was good for Nebuchadnezzar. Things had really come together in his life. He was doing well. He was living his best life now. He was doing all of that. But it's at this pinnacle of his life that God was going to bring him down to earth rapidly. Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. It's a really strange dream and it really freaks him out. He dreams of an incredibly large tree. It reached up as high as the sky. It was large and strong, and it could be seen from every part of the earth. It was a beautiful tree. Its fruit was abundant. It fed all people, all animals, all creations. It 
people, uh, the animals found shelter under its boughs. It was a truly stunning dream. And we learn as we read on that this tree was actually Nebuchadnezzar himself. He was the tree. This is the interpretation of the dream. And on the one level, this is a depiction of Nebuchadnezzar's reality. He, he is the king of a kingdom that extends to the ends of the earth. And there were many people who were under his rule. But this dream is also an examination, examination of his own heart. Nebuchadnezzar's heart was filled with Nebuchadnezzar. He was really into himself. He was the tree at the center of this world. He was full of pride. And pride does messed up things to our hearts. Pride is what kicks in when we're feeling down and destitute, when the chips are down. Pride kicks in and starts to weave a narrative that is designed to rescue us from feeling down and destitute. Pride is self-aggrandizing. It's self-aggrandizing, but not in the, in the classic way that we might think of it. We might think of someone like Ron Burgundy, and I know I'm actually aging myself um, by that quote. That movie came out 19 years ago. But think of, if you know Ron Burgundy, that reference, he's, a, he's this anchor man, and he's, he's so full of himself, and he's, he's looking at the mirror, and he's staring at himself in the mirror, and he's just, he's admiring his beauty, and he, sa- he says, hey, everyone, come see how good I look. Now, now, we might think of that as being what pride actually is, but that's actually a bit of a false caricature of pride. Pride, as the Bible treats it, is far more sinister, is far more subtle. Pride makes us the point without us even realizing it. Pride situates us in the middle of the universe in ways that we don't even question. Look at the description of this tree. It was in the middle of the earth and everything else was around it. I'm central. It, it, it makes us the point. It, it made Nebuchadnezzar the point. Pride exaggerates our own qualities. It says the tree was very large, very tall, very strong. It reached the sky. Like pride, we, we interpret our, our reality through that lens of pride. We go, oh, look at how good I am. Pride can only take into consideration its own perspective. Notice about this tree that it was visible to the ends of the earth. And nothing else is in focus. Nothing is said about anything else at the, in the ends of the earth. Only the tree. Pride lessens and eliminates our ability to walk in another person's shoes and consider the vast array of motivations and compulsions that are driving another person. Pride self-justifies. So the tree was very beautiful. Pride credits itself with more than it deserves. It says every creature was fed from it. Pride, pride always makes us the hero and the victim of the stories that we tell ourselves. Animals found shelter in it. This tree would have taken the brunt of the elements. It was, it was the victim in order to provide the hero-like shelter for all the animals underneath it. Pride is the fuel that drives our internal narrative towards destruction. We have a pretty massive problem with pride in our culture. And it's not that people think too highly of themselves. It's that too many people can think of only themselves. 
like this tree in the center of the universe, they can't think of anyone but themselves. Have you ever been frustrated because the person in in front of you is driving too slowly? That was me this morning. (laughs) That's a pride issue, right? Because deep down in your heart of hearts, what you're saying is, get out of my way. Don't you know how important I am? Don't you know I have places to be? Don't you know who I am? That's what my heart's doing when I'm getting frustrated with the person driving slowly in front of me. Or have you ever made a negative assumption about someone's parenting based on the behavior of their children? That's a pride issue. That's... That's not considering what it's like to walk in that person's shoes. That's not, that's not being able to consider the vast array of, of things that are, that are happening in that person's life. That is a pride issue. Pride is taking your eyes off God and off the needs of others and seeing and considering only yourself and your needs. And I know this for sure. The pride in my heart is a far bigger problem than I have estimated. And I even feel a little bit proud admitting that. It's a massive, sinister, evil problem. But then the dream for Nebuchadnezzar takes a turn for the worse. An angel descends from heaven, so we know where this angel has come from, where it's been sent from. And the angel commands the tree to be chopped down and destroyed. Just leave the stump. The animals will scatter. Just leave the stump in the ground. And verse 17, we get the purpose of this dream. It says, This is so that the living will know that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms. He gives them to anyone he wants, and he sets the lowliest of people over them. See, Nebuchadnezzar thought that he was in charge. But this dream told him that actually God is the one in charge. And the only reason why Nebuchadnezzar is in the position that he is in is because God has allowed it. This dream freaks Nebuchadnezzar out and he calls for Daniel to come and give him an interpretation, which is basically that God is going to strip him of his power. He's going to strip him of his dignity, of his sanity. He's going to lose his mind. He's going to become like a beast of the field. And the stump in the ground is there to say, God will one day restore the kingdom to you, Nebuchadnezzar, but only after you acknowledge that the Most High is ruler over human kingdoms and he gives them to anyone he wants. And the warning to the king is summed up in verse 27. Separate yourselves. Separate yourself from your sins by doing what is right and from your injustices by showing mercy to the needy. Do what is right. Follow God's law. Show justice to the needy. Think of others other than yourself. The warning is that he must humble himself. Otherwise, these things will come to pass. And this is what brings us to the next part, God's sovereign rule. This next part shows that God really is the one in charge and that Nebuchadnezzar is nothing more than a device in God's hand. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't do what Daniel warned him about, and he gives way to his pride. Around a year later, he was walking on the roof of his palace, no doubt the highest point in the entire kingdom, and he looked down and he he looked at everything, and he said to himself, is this not Babylon the great that I have built? Notice he says, I've built this. I've built it to be a royal residence, like I'm the king, so I've built this for my house. By my vast power and for my majestic glory. 
My, my majestic glory is so big. My vast power is so great that I need a great kingdom like Babylon in order to be able to house me. In other words, I'm God. That's what Nebuchadnezzar was thinking. And immediately, God's warning becomes a reality. God speaks to him and declares that his warning would be fulfilled. <clears throat> and it says that he was driven away from people. He ate grass like cattle and his body was drenched with dew from the sky until his hair grew like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. He lost his mind and he went from the roof of the palace to the open field. He went from being a king to a beast. And this lasted as long as God determined it would. After seven years, Nebuchadnezzar's vision changed. Instead of looking down at all of his accomplishments, it says in verse 34, he says in verse 34, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven and my sanity returned to me. Then I praised the Most High and honored and glorified him who he lives forever. This is the Lord's sovereign rule on display. He humbles those whom he wishes to humble. And following this, Nebuchadnezzar utters what I think is one of the most glorifying, exalting, honor-filled, wonderful exclamations of the glory of God in all of the Bible. I think it's at least in the top three. God is stunning in these words. And it's absolutely astonishing that these words come from the mouth of the person who destroyed the temple. This is King Nebuchadnezzar who destroyed the temple that Solomon built, that housed the Ark of the Covenant and the glory of God. That guy is saying these words, the words that Colin read out in verse 34 and 35. Let me read it again. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing, and he does what he wants with the army of heaven and the inhabitants of the earth. There is no one who can block his hand or say to him, what have you done? Let's dissect that real quick. God's kingdom his rule, his dominion, his reign will have no end and it will have no breaks. It will be from generation to generation and it will have no end. Every other kingdom set up by, by mankind will have its last day. These Babylonians had their last day. The door closed on the Babylonian kingdom one day. By the Persians, actually. And then, then the Persians, they had their last day. And then the Persians, had their la they had their last day at the hands of the Greeks, who had their last day at the hands of the Romans, and so on and so forth. No nation is future-proof. That's a strange thought, right? But if we can learn anything from history, no nation is future-proof. Like, this is a strange thought, but there will come a day where Australia will not be a thing anymore. Now, I don't know what that necessarily looks like, but there's going to come a day where God's kingdom at least will return. God will return the person of Jesus and it will become his kingdom on earth forever. There will come a day where McDonald's will have its last day. And that's a strange thought, right? We might have thought McDonald's is forever and ever. It's from generation to generation. It won't. It's a kingdom set up by mankind. It can't. Same with Coca-Cola, same with whatever. 
God's kingdom is forever. No nation is future-proof. God's kingdom will stand at the, at the grave of every, of every other kingdom set up by man. If you're stressed and worried about what the government is or isn't doing right now or what the global powers are up to, just remember this. His dominion is an everlasting dominion. How good is that? That's good news. And he says that compared to God, we are nothing. And friends, this is such a hard concept for us to get our heads around. Like in today's culture, that line there, all humanity is accounted as nothing, that line there, that is heresy in our culture. That is, a, that is heresy against the great God of self. We have to get our heads around this. See, if we, if we take on the attitude that is propagated from every outlet of the world, that we are the center of the universe, we are the grand arbiters of all truth, and that we really are magnificent creatures equal with God, we will struggle to accept the truth of who God is. Nebuchadnezzar's words here chafe against that ideal. We need to get our heads around the fact that God is the center of all time, of all space, and all existence, and we are not. God is central, and we are not. A little bit more than seven years ago, a bunch of us, part of LCC, gathered at uh, the, the lake building. Um, it was at night time, before we had moved from Launton to, to that building. And I can't remember exactly who was there. I think if you were there, I think you'll remember this. But I know Rosie was there. Because Rosie had this prophetic word that has stuck with me. She said this, and this isn't part of my notes. She said, there's a stage. And we, you remember this? Yeah. There's a stage. And we enter the stage on one side. We play our part. And then we hop off. And the main character, the main actor, the Lord of the universe, he remains on the stage forever. Your life is not about you. It's not about you. And your life will never make sense and it will be eternally frustrating until you get that. If we can't get our heads around this, we will be so frustrated by life. Our lives are not about us. And if we can't get that, then God's word will also not make sense for us. God's word will become tiresome and irrelevant and a bore. It will be just words on a page and we'll read it going, I've, this is, I don't get this. It's so boring. I don't understand what this is. If that's the way you're reading God's word at the moment, it might be the case that you're too close to the center of your own universe. And then he says that God can do whatever he wants with anyone he wants. No one can possibly block his hand. No one can possibly stop him. God's purposes will come to fruition. And the good news is that his, perf- his purposes are perfect in their goodness and their excellencies. And so it is extremely loving of him not to let us block his hand. Because his hand is better than ours. When it says no one can block his hand, we shouldn't go, ah, rats. We should go, praise God, because if I could block his hand, the world would just be destroyed in about five minutes. Finally, we will not hold him to account. No one will be able to say to him, what have you done? There are some people who believe that when they get, that, when they get to heaven, they've got some questions for God. 
They've got some questions. They're going to ask these questions. They're going to interrogate him and he's going to provide an answer. Friends, that is a delusion and a lie from the pit of hell. Every knee will bow. No one will be standing. Every tongue will confess. No words except Jesus is Lord will dare to escape our mouths. When Nebuchadnezzar acknowledges this, acknowledges God's rule, he is fully restored. And he issues a wonderful statement. You can read that at the end of chapter 4, but it ends like this. I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and glorify the King of Heavens because all his works are true and his ways are just. He is able to humble those who walk in pride. The great collision has happened, and Nebuchadnezzar, to his own delight, to his own delight, was broken, humbled, and corrected by God. And this collision in Daniel 4 points us to the collision that happens every day between two kingdoms, the the kingdom of God and the kingdom of our lives, the kingdom of us. This goes on in our hearts every day. It's the collision of the Lord's sovereignty and the kingdom of our autonomy. Every day we, like Nebuchadnezzar, stand on the rooftop of the palace of our hearts. We survey our lives and we seek to absorb the glory. In our pride, we elevate ourselves, we aggrandize ourselves, we make ourselves the center of the universe, thinking only of ourselves and only thinking of others when it suits us, when it's good for us. Pride is a big problem, church family. And we mustn't make this mistake of thinking that this is just a problem for Nebuchadnezzar, but not for me. This exists in our hearts. Pride is the essence of sin. Pride is an elevation of self above the most high God of the universe. And the Apostle James says this, and this, when we think about his words here, this should terrify us. He says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. That's how much of a problem pride is. When it comes to the way that God treats us, it is the proud who ultimately, that he is the proud that he ultimately opposes. And it's to the humble that he ultimately gives grace. We need to be humble before our God. See, to come to Jesus in pride is to seek him to be anything other than king. It's to seek to have Jesus, to have him mend some part of our lives or fix some part of our lives, but actually to leave us, by and large, in charge. That's what it means to come to God in pride. It's to go, Jesus, I'll take your salvation, but I don't don't, don't know about this Lord stuff. Just leave me in charge. I've got this, but please save me from my sin. It's to come to Jesus, hoping that, expecting him to occupy any space other than the central gravitational epicenter of our lives. Plenty of people come to Jesus hoping that he will sort out some kind of problem in their lives. Plenty of people come to Jesus seeking for him to be an add-on onto their already pretty good life. If, you, if that's how you approach Jesus, then you've not actually come to him seeking grace. You've come to him seeking payment for your work. If you come to God in pride expecting payment, he'll resist you. Of course he'll resist you. That's not what he does. If you come to God and you come to him with your resume, 
if you come to him with your list of all the things that you think will make you more eligible for salvation, you'll be resisted because he doesn't pay us with salvation for good works. He gives us salvation because of his grace and his deep, deep love for us, despite our failure to honor him with our lives. Don't come to the cross with a little bit of good hands in your pocket. Don't come to the cross with a pocket full of good deeds. Don't come to the cross waving your morality in front of him and appealing to him on the basis of your sincerity. If you come to Jesus saying, Jesus, look at how hard I tried to be good. Or look at how good my theology is. Or look at all the good that I did in your name. If you, if you come to God and you're pointing at yourself and you're saying, look at how much I deserve salvation, he'll resist you because that glorifies you and not him. But if you come empty-handed, totally empty-handed, utterly empty-handed, in humility, he'll give you grace. This is the weird and wonderful thing about Christianity. Christianity is not a, a self-help program or a self-improvement program for already good people. If you're here and you are not a Christian, it's, I'd say it's likely that there's some kind of idea of Christianity in your mind that kind of fits that description. That Christianity is this, this thing, you come and you've got to be a good person to get involved with it, and you come and you become a Christian, and then God makes you about 15% better. Like it's, it's like it's a slight improvement. It's a, you're, you're a touch better than most of the people on most days as long as nobody's watching. That's wrong. That's not what the Bible teaches us. Christianity is bad people coming to God with nothing and expecting everything. And it's outrageous that we can do that. It's outrageous that we can come to God and expect everything that we can because of his grace his grace is just that wonderful just that beautiful that we can come to god going i don't deserve any of this but i expect all of it because your grace is flipping amazing i mean imagine going into louis vuitton without your wallet now i actually don't get that analogy myself imagine (laughs) imagine you went to a toyota toyota dealership without a cent to your name and expecting to go out with a, with a new Land Cruiser. That's outrageous, right? The gospel says, come to the, God, come to the God of the universe like that. Come with empty hands. Come humbly and you'll be given everything. Because, not because of anything that you've done, but because of his mercy. His mercy being he gives you what you don't deserve because of his grace, because of his unbelievable grace, because of his deep, deep love for us. To come humbly to God is to come acknowledging your sin. It's to come acknowledging your need to be rescued. Come and be forgiven. Come and be made righteous. Nothing in my hands I bring. Simply to the cross I cling. The question is then, who can do that? Who can truly humble themselves like that? Because I can't. Left to my own devices, I cannot humble myself like that. I cannot empty my hands enough 
But God in his mercy not only gives grace to the humble, he also gives humility to the proud. Consider again what Nebuchadnezzar says there at the end of Daniel 4. He says, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. Isn't that good news? He is a, Friends, if you've got a pride problem, which is all of us, the good news is this. God is able to humble you. He is able to humble you. What God has demanded from us, God has provided for us, and he has done so in Jesus Christ alone. We have failed to live up to God's perfect standards. We have failed even to be able to acknowledge that. But God in his mercy sent his son, Jesus Christ, to live a perfectly righteous life. And Jesus came and lived that perfectly righteous life and he humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And God sent the Holy Spirit to convict us of our sin and to be able to repent and to be humble before him like that. And those whom God humbles, he uh, come to him with empty hands of faith. He, he gives them his grace. Their sins are forgiven and his Jesus' perfect record of obedience is credited to, to them as if they achieve that themselves. That's the story of the gospel. We, we come to God with nothing and he gives us everything. So here's the invitation. Come to God with the empty hands of faith. Come expecting that your that come expecting that your sins will be forgiven. Come expecting that every single wrong thought, wrong word, wrong deed, the, the massive list that you've racked up of all of that over your entire lifetime. It's an almost eternal list. All of that. Expect that all of that will be removed from your life, away from you, as far as the east is to the west. That will be removed from you, no longer credited to you, no longer on you. But actually, the, Jesus' perfect record of obedience, his perfection, his righteousness, that's what that means, his righteousness given to you, attributed to you, credited to you. So when God looks at you, he sees the perfect record of Jesus Christ as if you yourself had been perfect your entire life. Come to him, expecting your sins to be forgiven. Come to him, expecting for him to credit you with his righteousness. Come and anticipate that he will become the tree in the middle of your life. He will become your everything. He will become your king. So let's pray and let's ask God again to humble us. Father, we desire to be made humble. We desire to not come to you in pride and we repent of the times that we do. And Lord, our hope is that it won't take what it took Nebuchadnezzar to humble us. But Father, if that's the case, be it so for your glory and for our good. But Lord, we ask that we would take your warnings given to us in your word here. We would understand them to be your good and gracious warning to us. The warning is this, we are not God. The good news, Lord, is that you are. And you sent your son to take away our sin and to make us righteous. We thank you and we praise you, Lord. We ask, Lord, that you would make us humble. Holy Spirit, convict us of our sin. Convict us of wrong thoughts, wrong deeds. 
wrong words. Convict us of anything, Lord, that opposes you. Convict us of anything, Lord, that is an attempt to set up our own kingdom. We thank you, Jesus. We love you so much. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Life Centre Church located in North Lakes. We exist to make, mature and multiply disciples and communities that depend upon, declare and display the gospel of Jesus Christ in all of life. If you would like more information about us, please visit lifecentrechurch.com.au. We provide our podcasts free of charge. Please feel free to download the content and share it with others. But please do not edit or alter the content in any way without the written permission from the leadership of LCC.